Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. So Matt, congratulations on your first post on Epsilon Theory. Thank you very much. Very exciting. That was, uh, that was a really good article. So um, Matt recently went to, well, actually, let me take a step back. So, you know, one of the things that we all kind of do here is obviously we do a lot of reading, we do a lot of consumption of content, and it can come in various forms. Some of it's podcasting, some of it's blog posts, some of it's on Twitter. Um, but I know one of the sources that has been very influential both to you and Jack is the thoughts and ideas on Epsilon Theory. And that's Ben Hunt's company. Ben's been on our podcast a few times. Um, and, you know, Matt, you sort of took the opportunity to go to their Epsilon Connect conference, which was a conference they held that brought together a bunch of people that touch Epsilon Theory in some way, shape or form. You're a financial advisor. Um, there may have been other investment professionals there and there was, but, you know, it's kind of a whole very diverse set of people that are sort of connected through the Epsilon Theory, I guess, community. And your article, which I got to give you credit for like the catchiest headline of headlines, which is when the best conference speaker is your Uber driver. And then you had Epsilon Connect, you know, notes, basically. You sort of walked through, you sort of touched on a little bit about what was going on in the conference. And I'll let you talk about that in a second. And we'll talk about some of the core things that you, um, I guess, learned or some of the presentations. But then you sort of shared this story of this Uber driver, this Uber ride you had, and, and, and you sort of drew some, you know, I guess, lessons from that or things for people to think about. So maybe with that as like the setup, um, I'll let you sort of just talk about, like work us into the conference a little bit and we'll just have a discussion about some of the interesting things that you learned. I got to tell you the, and I don't think I've shared this with you guys personally offline either. Did I tell you about how I ended up actually going to the conference? No. So, so I'm, I'm an Epsilon Theory subscriber for a long time. I'm a reader literally since about the inception. I'm pretty sure when I go back in my notes right around the inception, which was 10 years ago, I started following. Uh, I told Ben the lovely story about how I was an unsolicited ad to an email list. And it was one of those, you're cleaning out the inbox and you're like, what the heck is this? And then you read it and you're like, uh, that was thoughtful. I'm not clicking unsubscribe. I don't know how I got to this, but that's how I found him by accident. And then I just kept reading him for 10 years uh, and the people that he's built up around it. So during the pandemic, a good friend of mine was writing some stuff. So he's a, he's an active touring musician and does a lot of stuff in the music industry still. We were college buddies and he wrote some stuff. And this is my buddy, Scott Bradley. And he was writing these things on just... He's out there living on a farm. He's figuring out life. He's moving to Nashville and he's just 
he's writing this stuff that I'm like, this is basically like epsilon theory. Do you ever read this? I know you're not a finance person, but you should check this out. So I get my friend Scott to start reading this stuff. And we had been talking about how we had to get together and he lives in Nashville now. And when this conference got announced, I immediately get this text from him that's like, okay, here's your excuse. You got to come to Nashville. We got to hang out. It's been literally like 15 plus years. We got to get together and we'll go to this conference together. So I hemmed and hawed and I was like, oh, I don't have time for this, uh, blah, 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 blah. But a college buddy who I hadn't seen in more than 15 years, close to 20 years, was literally the reason that I got on a, I booked the ticket, got on a plane and went and showed up at a conference that I can honestly say really helped rewire a bunch of stuff that I was thinking and feeling about my life, my career and everything else. And here was this beautiful conference that highlighted all of it and turned into this post you saw about my Uber driver being my favorite speaker. So I got I got to ask the question anything I mean I'll tell you that I'll tell you the story of the Uber ride, but anything well, in particular you've you've read this stuff like what jumped out at you? So so yeah, no I w- I just want to say like and maybe this gets into the first point that you you were investing in the real. You were investing in actually going to see a friend going to a conference that, you know, maybe you were on the fence about, but that's, I think one of the big things that Ben talks about is investing in the real. The conference didn't matter to me. Like I was excited to go to the conference. I was excited because I just told you, like I'm a 10 year fan. I'm a paying subscriber to this network. So I was excited to go to the conference, but what I was really excited for was to physically see this friend that all through the pandemic, we were texting and calling and emailing all the time. And we were going to be in the same physical space together and have this shared experience. And it that's investing in the real, investing in real relationships that actually add value to your life in a positive way. And that was the core of what got me there. Yeah. The one comment I had too is like, it's clear when we talked to Ben on our podcast, Ben talked about this idea of having like a compulsion to write. Like he, he just has to do it. And it's very clear reading this that you have that too. Like, I mean, you've been writing daily for Cultish Creative for like a really long time, I think, right? So another part of this was literally since 2017 and the notes go back even further than that. I had decided years and years ago, I come from a family with writers, with English people, stuff like that, that I needed to have, you brought up the point, Justin, that we all consume tons of information. So I'm consuming all this information. I'm drinking from this fire hose. And it's like, have you guys had that point where you realize you you can't think in complete thoughts? Like there's so much swirling around that you're just like, I don't even know what's happening by the end of the day. Can you relate to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I came to this point where I was, I just said, I want to have a complete thought a day. And I want to take this stuff that I'm like reading and I just want to capture one piece out of the ether and record it and create this library. And so Cultish Creative, which is my personal website, daily daily email email newsletter, if you want to sign up, check out the website, cultishcreative.com. The idea was as simple as that. I want to have one complete thought a day. I want to catalog those complete thoughts. And I just want to build a personal library of quick to read things that I can use to start a conversation with another human being. And I started doing that in 2017. So a compulsion to write with a daily newsletter since 2017 of just thinking about ways to have fun conversations with people. Yeah. And you're, you're a tremendous writer. I mean, like I said, I emailed you when you wrote this. I'm like, this is better than anything I've ever written in my career. So, uh, no, no. You know, and I'm writing like five things about multi-factor investing or whatever. Like I'm not writing about the, uh, 
you know, these topics, but just the, the quality of the writing was, was amazing. Um, so yeah, you should definitely be complimented. Anybody who hasn't gone and read Matt's piece, um, you know, is it on both your blog and Epsilon Theory or is it just on Epsilon Theory? It's on Cultish Creative and it's on Epsilon Theory. I Well, Cultish Creative, it's definitely free. Epsilon Theory, I believe it is not behind the paywall and anybody can pull it up there too. So, and yeah, just picking back up on this, uh, when we think about lessons from this, getting back on this idea of investing in the real, it sort of carries all the way from like your personal relationships all the way to what we do, you know, which is like investing in stock markets. So like you've got investing in your personal relationships and then you've got sort of, I think the next step and correct me if I'm wrong, because I obviously wasn't here, but like the idea of investing in, you know, your personal business or, or something in your life that's not like in a public stock market, but something you believe in, something you're passionate about. And then it can carry all the way at the other end to like, if you are investing in a public stock market, like think about things that have real cash flows that are real businesses, you know, not the meme stocks or whatever we've been dealing with for the past few years. You know, it's like, think, think about things that are real, that make money, that make something, you know, that may be, you know, as, as we sort of transition to like an inflationary environment, that may be, you know, very important to be investing in real things. So as an advisor in the professional work that I do uh, with Sunpoint, it's this idea, and I've said this a bunch of times, it's like, especially to small business owners, you don't have to go out and start the next Amazon, but you do have to know how to help your clients, your customers, whoever you serve, you got to help them out of the jungle or survive the jungle. So we're not trying to build something to scale to like a billion users, revenue, whatever else necessarily, but we are trying to build in our personal relationships, something that keeps our tribe, our pack, our group of people alive as we navigate the environment that we find ourselves swimming in. So Ben gives a great presentation at the conference. He calls it investing in the real. He's written about this extensively on Epsilon Theory. And it's about investing in like what you just said, real things, tangible things, stuff you can touch. And for me, a huge part of that's investing in relationships. Now, I got to relate it back to this because I just want to, I want your take on this. He, he flashed up a chart in the presentation and he basically said factor premia or stuff that you can invest in collapsed in the global financial right crisis. And he showed some charts about how value, uh, everything that's not basically like growth or narrative-driven factors like that, basically you couldn't, value and quality just haven't worked since the financial crisis, except for in small fits fits and bursts. What say ye? Yeah, no, that, that's actually very true. I mean, it, it sometimes maybe even longer than that, you know, you, you've had issues with factors. But what's interesting to me is, you know, you could argue in sort of this transition we're making to a new world, you know, maybe they will do better because they they do to some extent get at the real. Um, like value gets at, like if I'm looking at the price relative to the cash flow, well, cash flow is real. And so th this 0% central bank thing, I think was a big part of distorting all this stuff. And so obviously we don't know where rates are going. We don't know if rates are going back down, but you could at least argue that, you know, some of these factors at least might have a better outlook, you know, in an inflationary environment, in, in sort of the environment we're in, where rates are higher and, you know, cash flows and things like that might matter. But you're right. I mean, this is something we talked about in our episode we just did with Kai Wu, because he's sort of taken a, a different way of looking at value and looking at value based on like intangible value factors, understanding that these standard value factors are struggling and we don't really know, you know, what the outlook for them is in the future. Will the hundred years of data we have to support them hold up or will, you know, the 15 years where they haven't worked hold up? You know, we don't know that. So he's kind of said, let's let's look at it both ways. Let's look at value both in terms of like cash flows and stuff. And let's look at it in terms of intangible assets. So yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I do think it's something I think about a lot. And, and I do think in this world where we're sort of transitioning from zero rates, I think you might see a little bit better, you know, outlook for some of these factors, particularly value. The other thing is 
that it's not, you know, there's been other times in history where these factors have gone through long periods of not working. So it's, you know, it's not, this was a very long period, but it's, it's not like it's never happened before. Um, And I think the other point that Ben sort of makes with this is, you know, the unprecedented involvement of the Federal Reserve in the markets sort of changed things that changed sort of how markets were behaving and reacting. We obviously had historically low interest rates, which probably played a factor in this. So I don't know. I think that that it's it's uh, those are just two additional points to sort of, I guess, bring up. I think the point that they that Epsilon Theory makes over and over again is this idea of not just communicating what to think, but how to think. And with the financial crisis and the Fed becoming the dominant force, we all relearned for the last 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it's been now, basically how to think. And we learned that from the perspective of the Fed ultimately being in control and the interest rate being the the main thing we all focused on. And it's really interesting as to, to both of your points, now that that dynamic shifted because we finally do have inflation, we finally do have some issues, we have more than one voice and more than one competing narrative about how to think, how to value companies and how to value maybe like what's real versus what's just a promise of a future. Yeah, that how to think thing is so important because it, it's not just in investing, but in life. I mean, you're going to have people who are going to tell you, you know, value investing is not dead and it's 100% chance value investing will work in the future. And then you'll have people to tell you it's 100% chance value investing is dead. It's never going to work again. And like you have to be able to bring that together and think intelligently about what each person is saying and sort of form your own opinion. You know, we have so many in this world, like going all the way up to politics, but coming down to the markets, you just have people like screaming and yelling, you know, there are specific views as if there is no other view in the world. And, and it's so important in everything. And I, I think this kind of fits in with the conference as well. Like it's so important in everything to find like like-minded people you can talk to about these things and you can see both sides and, and you don't just have this opinion that's like, you know, stuck in the cement that you're never going to change no matter what. Couldn't agree more. I, I think it's, I'm going to guess it's Kevin Weir. I should probably pull it up on Twitter, macro tourist, Kevin Muir. And uh, it's, it's like his pin tweet or something is just, it's a picture of a bunch of like beer glasses clinking or something. And it's like, here's to the friends we can have arguments about stuff with and still be friends afterwards. One, one of the points you made in the article, and I think it relates to this, is that, you know, we all have these, and I think some people more than others, Matt, I think you actually probably have a lot of these mental models that you use and that you think about when thinking about these different types of life and investing and planning issues. But like you pointed out in the article, there are all these gaps you know, nothing can really be just totally modeled out. There's these gaps that need to be filled in. And you can fill in those gaps by thinking of things, talking to people like Jack just said, and trying to go to things like this and figuring out, okay, what might those gaps be? And how do I think those through? Um, And, you know, I think the other point that you made was around this um, presentation by Rusty, who's Ben's partner, about citizenship in in a fiat world. And how he was talking about, you know, being a good citizen in this era of people's opinion, I think, widening with different views on things. So I don't know if if you want to just speak to that for a minute or two. And Epsilon Theory, and I put this in the piece, so if you read it, I think you'll get a much more, you'll get a better view of it. I think, and I say this not because I'm qualified to say this in some profound, fancy letters after my name way. I say this in a way that I think I understood it more from attending this conference and having this experience. And that's the idea of 
the the epsilon is the error term in something. So we model something, we make a map of reality, but it's not perfect. And I, I had I'd come back from the conference and there was a bunch of storms in the area. And we literally had this branch that fell out of a tree and was like across our driveway. And so we're sitting on the sidewalk with our dog and talking, my girlfriend and I, about this branch on the sidewalk. And this this couple who always walks by our house literally goes to walk by the house and they see the branch and they just pick it up and move it into the yard. And we watch this happen out my window. And I'm like, that's that's it. Like the the error here is we can have a map of the neighborhood, but unless you walk by, you don't see the branch across the sidewalk. The Google car didn't drive by and take a picture yet to show the branch. And then the beautiful part is how we talk about the maps then matters and how we care for the the real world on the other side of that map. So the epsilon refers the the missing part that closes the gap between the map and the reality. And then we have this couple who walks by our house every day and they stop to just move the branch so that people could walk through. It's like, what a, what a beautiful embodiment. I'll connect this back now. So <laughs> citizenship in a fiat world. So Rusty Gwynn, um, fantastic, fantastic presentation. And three, I think three terms that come out of this for people who don't follow the epsilon theory stuff. So he gets into this idea of what, what they call the widening gyre and the widening gyre also great Batman comic book. Got to give you some pop culture in this Kevin Smith's Batman series, the widening gyre. So, so good. So the widening gyre, when they talk of it is about the political spectrum. It's this Pew research study that basically shows uh, Democrats and Republicans and explains how in the last however many years, decade or so, we've seen the middle of the American political s- spectrum get hollowed out. So basically, instead of having a lot of people in the middle and a decent amount of people in the wings, we've seen the middle basically drop in terms of like people who identify as in the middle. And we've seen the tails, the hardcore Republicans and the hardcore Democrats basically get uh, boosted. The peaks have risen on the outside. And so the widening gyre is this idea that we have, we've pushed the middle out into the the wings. Now, when they explain why that happened, and this is what Rusty spoke very, very eloquently about, is he compares it to two game theory problems. The first is the prisoner's dilemma, which most people know, easy to look up. And the second is the stag hunt. And the idea is that in a prisoner's dilemma, it's you and your buddy commit a crime, the commit, the police pick you up, you're both in different holding cells, and if you rat on your friend, you might get out free and clear, but they might spend a lot of time in jail. And if they rat on you, but you don't rat on them, then uh, maybe you end up a lot of time in jail and your friend gets out free and clear. And if you both rat on each other, then you're both guilty and you both end up with a decent amount of time in jail. If nobody says anything, maybe you both walk free and clear. So the prisoner dilemma is this idea is it's a game that pits us against each other. And when we see the widening gyre, we see this problem of left team, right team, blue team, uh, red team, blue team, left team, right team. They're pitted against each other in this prisoner's dilemma. And it only makes the situation worse because if you don't know you can trust the people, the other person, your buddy who was partner in crime, but now you're both in separate holding cells, stuff falls apart. The flip side is the stag hunt, and the stag hunt is another game theory problem where we basically have uh, two hunters who can go after a stag or a hare. And the idea is if one goes after the hare and the other goes after the stag, well, you shoot at the rabbit and then that scares off the stags and all of a sudden this, this doesn't work. The only way for the stag hunt to solve is, and you get to a win-win scenario, is if both hunters agree to hunt the stag together. 
Now, when both hunters agree to do that, they get the biggest return on the investment by collaborating. And so the answer to the widening gyre or citizenship in a fiat world is that if instead of competing with each other and hiding in our respective corners, we can find things to collaborate on, that's what pulls people back into the middle. And so it was a really profound and beautiful um, conversation about how do we pull people back into the middle. And that's the heart of that Uber driver piece. Listen. I think, um, I don't know if you want to, we can maybe save the article for people who want to read it later, but I mean, you may want to tell the story of the Uber driver um, because I, I think it fits into this whole thing. The short version of the Uber driver. And when I say I left out a lot of details, so I get out of the Uber driver's car. I got to say this first. I get out of the Uber driver's car and uh, the first person I get to talk to is my my buddy Scott's fiance. And it was one of those things where you're like, am I about to just unload this ridiculous experience on somebody that I I literally had just met for the first time like a day, two days ago, a day ago? And, and I did. And I had her and a friend of hers like laughing pretty hard as I'm just like, the craziest thing just happened to me in this car. You're not going to believe the stories I heard in the last 20 minutes. But the story basically goes like this. I, I needed a ride to get back to where I was staying. This this woman in a pickup truck picks me up in literally the first couple of minutes in our on our ride. And I'm just doing the polite conversation of how long have you been an Uber driver for? Do you like it? And we're pulling onto the highway and she drops the thing you never want to hear from your Uber driver <laughs> where she says like, well, uh, you know, it's going well. Um, and um, I'm happy to drive this truck, not the big rigs I used to drive because I had to stop those after my accident. And she tells me that like that sentence is uttered as the truck is pulling onto the highway. And I was like, well, I guess I'm either going to die right now <laughs> or... Maybe uh, we could find out why she's not driving big rigs anymore and she's driving for Uber. And and that's what she did. She ends up telling me this really profound and touching story about how the, the career fell apart with this accident. She doesn't say the right stuff in the court case. She doesn't get the money she probably deserves for the injuries and the things she succumbed to. And she tells me about her life, tells me about her family, tells me about her kind of crazy marriage situation and the strife that's going on inside of their family. And this is all in the article. So all I can say is it was one of the most touching human moments I've shared with a stranger in a long time, but it highlighted all this stuff. It highlighted if we can listen to each other and talk to each other, this is how we fold back into the middle. This is how we meet in the middle. And it's about not being judgmental, productive purpose. I just needed to get back to the place I was staying. Thank the gods. I had this kind and loving person who got me back to the place I needed and got me there safely. That's productive, collaborative use of even if we did or did not have the, all the same political or views or life experiences, we can still serve a productive purpose together. Yeah, it's, it's so important to keep in mind, like what connects us is greater than what takes us apart. And, you know, for me, like I, I grew up in Connecticut. So like where I grew up was a pretty would be considered a pretty democratic area. Um, and then I spent a bunch of time, my wife's from Georgia. So I spent a bunch of time living like in, not in Atlanta, but like far outside of Atlanta and like the deep South part of Georgia. And you, you couldn't find two more opposite places in those two places. I mean, they are, they are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum in so many different ways. But like when you meet people, you realize, I mean, for the most part, they're like 90% the same. They say different things about politics and then, you know, different, they talk different way. I mean, all that stuff, but like 90% of them is the same. I mean, 
They want to have interactions with other people. They want to be happy. They want to take care of their kids. And, you know, all that stuff is consistent among everyone. And, And it's hard to like, when you go on Twitter and you see people on one side, right, you know, saying this crazy stuff and on the other side saying this crazy stuff, it's, it's hard to remember that because like Twitter has such an impact on us. I mean, we use it for business and stuff, but like, it's, it's just hard to like realize like most people want the same stuff and like 90% of it with us is the same. And if we can remember that 90% and forget about the 10% that we're screaming and yelling at each other about it, it's going to make the world better. That was probably the essence of the conference. Grant, Grant Williams. So I'm, have you guys had Grant Williams on the podcast at all ever? No, but I've listened to him. He's an excellent interviewer. Like I have a lot to learn from him. Heck yeah. I mean, Grant is one of the best interviewers. Things that make you go hum is uh, one of my, another thing that I, I love getting. And I have learned so much from Grant over the years. So Grant was at the conference and Grant gave a delightful presentation on how to talk to anyone. And that conversation was really in my mind after the Uber driver experience. I know I do a lot of this intuitively back to that compulsion to write thing. I have a, I just have a compulsion to consume stuff. Can't help it. Just, I just like information and like hearing stories and like taking stuff and then distilling it down for myself, if nothing else. And he explained in that presentation that like, this is the key to your 90% point. Just shut up and listen. You'll find the common threads if you're willing to shut up and listen and just ask people about themselves. And you can ask complicated questions and get insights. We can ask people just like you guys do on the podcast when you ask the questions about what you're doing for yourself. What's the, say the closing question that you just did the great, like of all the 200 episodes, here's that last bit. If, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Oh, how much when you ask that question, do you actually learn about the person? A lot. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, I would say definitely a huge amount. And I think that that was Grant's point. You can ask the most soulful, grounded question and someone will give you the most brilliant and amazing life story you ever like truth is stranger than fiction style like I had in my Uber ride. Or you can ask somebody something highly technical and they can explain to you. And this is why I think your question is brilliant because it's for the average investor. It's take this and distill it down to human terms. And then you get sometimes a very spreadsheety thought process, but you get that logic broken down in a way that feels really profound and true and reminds you back to like for 90% of humanity, whatever the definitional average is in their mind, how does this apply? And that's really humanizing. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like we, we ask kind of both of those types of things. Like we'll, you know, we'll ask like about the detailed description of your factor you've created or something like that to someone like we're talking about multi-factor investing. But I think the best question we ask is when we start to show us your portfolio episodes and we ask people like sort of what the purpose is with their portfolio before we get into what they're actually doing, like, what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, I think we get some of the best answers to that question, probably to any other question we ask on, on our podcast. I couldn't agree more. That's one of my favorite things when listening to you guys have these conversations is hearing these people explain purpose because in my work, so in the day job work, that's the place where I'm focused with the client relationships. Like I've got my, my, my Ben, my Ben, Ben Tuskai as director of planning. Like he's the expert on, he's the one finding the mistakes that the lawyers and the accountants make. I've got Lee, my director of research, like doing all the the investment portfolio stuff and like untangling these privates and everything else. My job is just to have a conversation with the client and just get to the heart of purpose and then match the purpose up with the right investment strategies, with the right like planning tactics and tweaks. And 
that's the human connection. It doesn't matter if you're like a billionaire or somebody just starting a business, that human connection and finding that purpose and what drives it forward. That's, that's everything. We all just want to talk about it. And that was the one thing that the article, this conversation and the article sort of drives home for me is you have investors who have put trust in clients that have put trust in you and your team, Matt, clients that have put trust in Jack and, and, and I and the team here at Validia Capital in terms of managing their money and helping their wealth grow. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, that that's important. But what's really important, I think, is, you know, listening to people, understanding people, being there for those times that are difficult for people. Um, I mean, some of our, you know, our best longest term clients, you know, the discussion's almost not about money. It's, it's, it's about all these other things in life and acting as their, their trusted advisor. I mean, when someone gives you, you know, a million dollars or $2 million, and that's almost their entire investable assets, they're putting a huge amount of trust in you, but the trust goes beyond the investment process. It's about, do you believe in this individual and do you trust this individual? And so, you know, I think that the the article for me was like, you know, you had a 20 minute ride and this lady like opened up to you, which was amazing. Um, and, you know, that's all people want. They just want to know that someone's listening. And if they think someone's listening, honestly, then, you know, the likelihood is, is they're going to share those important details about life. And that's how relationships are built. And that's how relationships stay long lasting. We talked about in, in a lot of depth with Peter Mladina, and we talked about it with, uh, with uh, Matthew uh, Pellerin too, about this human capital and investment capital thing. And that's the other part of this when we think about investing in the real. And I've, I've said this, I'm definitely on record with this a number of times. The human capital part of it's so interesting to me because it's, yes, it's net human capital and the planning uh, technical language where we're talking about your propensity and ability to save and how you consume and all that stuff. But human capital and investment capital, you have your your people and you have your people portfolio and that's your pack or that's your group or that's the people you care about and how you reinvest in those relationships and how they compound. Again, one of my best friends in college who we bonded over a love for like late 80s and early 90s rap records that everybody had more or less forgotten about because we thought it was, you know, hysterical to call each other the insults from De La Soul is Dead. That friendship was the reason that reunited. Investing in that relationship was the, you got to get on a plane and go to this conference. And now here I am on the other side, you know, collaborating and writing with some people that I've admired and respected from a distance for so long. Yeah. And I think it's important to keep in mind that you're not going to, you know, going back to your point, like if you're going to achieve something meaningful in your life and, and meaningful could be a lot of different things. Meaningful is relationships. Meaningful is something doing something you love and, and meaningful can also be obviously things tied to money. Like you're not going to do that with your stock portfolio. Typically, you know, th those things are not like, and that gets to the investing in the real thing. Like whether it is, whether you want to have great relationships with people, whether you want to do something you love every day or whether you want to build just long-term wealth, like the odds of doing that in your personal life with something you know about, something you're good at, something you enjoy doing are just so much higher than, you know, selecting the perfect multi-factor portfolio to get there. So I just think it's important, like when we work with people, when you work with people to always take a step back and say like, you know, what is really important in life? And, you know, although we're going to certainly try to generate the best returns we can with a public stock portfolio, typically, you know, the most important things in life are not going to come from that portfolio. The epsilon is the missing piece. 
And the idea and the premise of this conference was how do we talk about the missing piece? How do we acknowledge what's there? Not in assumptions, not in just hand wavy, like, of course, you can't perfectly model for the future because you can't see our predictions episode two, see the comments on the predictions <laughs> episode two. You can't, you can't perfectly model or predict the future. However, you have to have a view. And the key is if we're going to talk about that, the epsilon exists. Our models, our maps have error terms. They are imperfect. If we're going to talk about how that exists, how do we flip it to make sure that the existing of the error is a productive acknowledgement? So we'll put a link to the article in the show notes so anyone can check that out. Hopefully you do. We know this was a little outside of financial planning, but hopefully we were able to you know, tie some of the things that Matt learned about to some planning concepts. Uh, we hope you guys... Uh, enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback, please let us know and we will see you next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.